invite you to take your Bible out and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 5. If uh, you haven't been coming for a while, we are preaching through the Bible in a year. And uh, this part of the scriptures come right before the Israelites enter into the promised land. I'll be reading verses 1 through 21. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. That's another name from Mount Sinai. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of those who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of fire on the mountain. And at that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything, in heaven above, or on the earth below, or in the waters below. You should not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You should not misuse the name of the Lord your God, For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But in the seventh day, hold it as a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey or any of your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. On your father and mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long, and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything. That belongs to your neighbor. Now, when we read the story of the Israelites receiving the Ten Commandments, um, the, the much more familiar setting is that of uh, Mount Sinai, where Moses walked up the mountain with the Israelites down below and received the Ten Commandments from, from God. But this is a different story than that. And if you've been reading through the Bible in a year with us. Um, you know, you may be familiar that this happens twice. 
you may have thought, hey, the Israelites received the Ten Commandments once and only once, but it happens twice. This is the second time that the Israelites received the Ten Commandments uh, from the Lord. Uh, So why this second story of receiving the Ten Commandments? Well, the Israelites, they're about to go into the Promised Land. This is the second generation of Israelites. The people that are hearing Moses speak in this story, their parents have passed away, died as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. And I like how Moses puts it before he reads the the commands to them. He says, God did not make this covenant with your ancestors. And it's it's not entirely clear if Moses is referring to the ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, or the previous generation that of Israelites that were rescued out of slavery in Egypt. But either way, Moses is making the point, this point, God is making this covenant with you, you Israelites, and giving them this opportunity to own this moment of receiving the Ten Commandments. Um, we have, may I suggest, a similar moment today. God is making this covenant with you, with you, with you. What I would like to do is I want to I look at three questions this morning. Uh, the command of putting God first. And so we're going to look at the first two commandments of, of these ten. So the command of putting God first, the difficulty of putting God first, and then look at the result of um, putting God first in our lives. Right? So the first uh, point, the command of putting God first. The first command Uh, Look at verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. And I have this word as a fill-in before. You can circle that word if you're looking in your Bible. Um, I want to explain how we should understand that word before. Um, As it is used there, it is not a word that communicates priority like saying something like, hey, let's, you know, Let's work before play. When we say something like that, we are indicating uh, that there is a priority. We should work before we play, but after we get done working, we can play. We can do both. Just prioritize the two. Uh, That word before is not to be read like that in that verse. Um, The the better way of reading that word is... um, it's not a word about priority. It's, about, it's a word about placement. Like, there should not be any gods before me in my, in my presence, God is saying. I do not want you to worship. I don't want to see you worshiping any other gods is, is another way of thinking about that, that verse. Um, it's not work, then play. It's not worship me, then you can worship other gods if you would like. Uh, God, now think about that um, ancient polytheistic worldview uh, that the ancient Israelites were surrounded by. God is not saying, worship me, and then if you want to, you know, entertain some of these other gods, uh, go ahead. No, I am the only true God is what God is saying. So in that ancient environment, um, it's it is uh, fairly easy to come up with an application of that verse. Don't be polytheistic 
in your understanding of there being multiple gods. No, I'm just the one God that I want you worshiping. Today, um, especially in the Western Hemisphere, people are uh, less inclined to believe in multiple gods. So how do we apply this verse today? Well, something like this. Don't give something other than God more weight in your heart than God himself. Not even you yourself should receive more weight than God in your own heart. So that's the first command. And I want to spend a little more time on the second command because I think we generally spend less time thinking about it. The second command is... Verse 8, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Now just think about what we're reading there. Do not make for yourself an image of anything in heaven above, the earth below, or in the waters, the earth beneath or the waters below. Let's talk about what that doesn't mean, and then we'll talk about what it does mean. It doesn't mean you should not paint or sculpt artwork of things. Even though, if you read that verse, you could suggest it kind of sounds what it, like what it's saying, but that's not what it's saying. Now, for example, the Hebrew temple decorations, if you read descriptions of how the ancient Hebrew temple was decorated, It included sculptures of things like pomegranates or bulls or lilies, flowers, um, lions, cherubim. So an artesian sculpted images of those things, things in the heavens above, like a cherubim, like an angel, or things on the earth below, like pomegranates and animals and lilies, flowers used to decorate the Hebrew temple. So it doesn't rule out artwork. Uh, do you remember, I think it was maybe 20 years ago, the, the art cows that appeared in Houston? Like 300 or so cows, like almost full-size cows. And they were creatively painted and then hidden around the city. And you drive around and, you know, you, oh, there's one of the cows. Um, it, was, it was pretty cool. Uh, that didn't break commandment two. And the next verse gives the intent of the, the previous one that we just read. The next verse, verse 9, says, You shall not bow down to, wor- to them or worship them. So that's the intent. Don't create for yourself an image that you can then worship, that you can then bow down to. Now, there is a very nearby story to this one of a cow statue that did break commandment two. What story is that? Heart cows in Houston, that's okay. Another cow that was created using lots of gold from the Israelites. Not okay. When Aaron, Moses' brother, created this image of a cow so that the Israelites 
could worship it. Now, you're familiar with that story. Uh, Pierre Mata preached on that a few Sundays ago. Um, that story is not one of violating the first commandment, by the way. You might think, oh, that's, that's no other gods before me commandment violation. Now, actually, that's, a, that's a, a second commandment violation. Aaron wasn't saying, hey, let's come up with a new god. He wasn't saying, hey, Israelites, it's time for a change. This God that Moses is meeting up with a mountain, he's kind of ferocious looking. There's a bunch, of, a bunch of darkness and rumbling in that mountain. We don't want to have anything to do with that God. Let's come up with a different one. That is not what was happening in that story. It's worth reading what Aaron says in um, Exodus chapter 32, verse 4. So he, he makes this idol of the calf, handed it to the Israelites, And here's what Aaron said. These are your gods, Israel. Or it's completely uh, appropriate uh, to understand that as this is your God, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt, the same God that brought you up out of Egypt. We're not getting a new God. We're still following the old God, but we're going to make this image so that we can worship this image. That is a second commandment violation. So it would be unfaithful to give something else, including yourself, a higher place in your heart than God. And it also would be unfaithful to honor God in ways that would be untruthful to who he is. I like how Alistair Begg um, put this faith truth. He put it like this, idolatry consists not only in the worship of false gods, but also in the worship of the one God in false ways. We want to avoid both. We don't want to worship the one God in false ways. But it can be difficult. difficult. So let's talk about how we often do that, worship the one God in false ways. Let's talk about the difficulty of putting God first. Uh, We are... We are more stealthy in violating the second commandment than committing than uh, creating some statue for us to worship. Through this command, I think God is saying, "Do not come up on your own what you think that I am like." See, God reveals Himself most clearly through His, writ- his written word, or the Scriptures, and the incarnate Word, and that's Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, Word made flesh. And how do we know who Jesus is? Through God's written Word. So God's Word should determine our conception of Him, not our wishes. That should not determine our conception of God, not who we would like to be, not our God would like to be, uh, not, not who God would be if we were to be able to step into God's shoes for a little while. Um. What should determine our conception of God, our understanding of God? It is his written word. And by looking at the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. And it's tempting. It's tempting to say, it's easy to say. uh, For people to say things like, well, I I like to think of God as this. Um, You know, I, I like to think of God as 
and then insert however you wish God to be like. I, I like to think of God as someone who would want me to be happy above all else. Um, or I, I, I like to think of God as not being um, against sin and, and coming up with, with rules against sin, things like that. Have you, have you heard of people doing that? Have you heard someone doing that? I like to think, you, you, you know, you're talking about God and who, how God is like and someone encounters what you're saying with, well, I kind of like to think of God as like this other way. Why would anyone be inclined to do this, by the way? Just kind of come up with how they would like God to be like. Well, it's, it's this, isn't it? It's any of our attempts to fashion God the way we want him to be, our efforts to control God. We're, we're trying to control who we think God is to meet our needs. Now, let's think about Aaron making the golden calf. Why did he feel the need to do that? Moses was up with the Israelites on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God the first time. There's thunder, there's darkness over the mountain. There's shaking, people are terrified. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. Israel wanted to have a form of God that didn't terrify them. The Israelites wanted a form of God that they could see, that they knew was with them. Wherever the Israelites went, they could take that God with them. The Israelites said, come make us gods who will go before us. We want to be able to see this God and know that that God is with us. Makes me think of a, a song that we used to sing at camp, at kids' camp. Um, you may have sung it. I don't know. Lots of camp songs out there. If I had a tiny little box to put my Jesus in, anyone sing that little silly camp song? If I had a tiny little box to put my Jesus in, I'd take him out and and then put him right back in. What a silly song. There's another verse about if I had a tiny little box to put my Satan in, I'd take him out and smash his face and then put him back in. And, you know, just, a, you know, camp songs, right? It's little camp songs. Um, <laughs> what's this idea of came up, someone came up with this idea of putting God in a little box. And that's what we, we wish we could do sometimes. God, I want you to, I want to be able to put you in this little box that I can understand, so I can understand you and, feel like I've, I've got you managed, and my faith in you is somewhat managed because you're in this little, this little box in my mind. Just a goofy idea. God does not allow us to do that. So if given the choice, Lee, if you're following me, this is top of page four, if given the choice, people will choose a less mysterious, more predictable God one that they can more easily get their mind around, one that they feel like, ah, oh, I can, I can kind of control, I can keep this managed in my life. 
Let me give you another example. About 20 years ago, there, was a, uh, there, or there is a Christian sociologist named Christian Smith. He works at the University of Notre Dame, and he studied... He has studied religious views in America uh, for quite some time. About 20 years ago, he talked about a new and fastest rising religion in the United States. The fastest rising religion, he says, not Islam, not Mormonism. And he gave it a name. You can Google this name. You'll find lots on this, this new religion, and it's... Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And he studied the religious viewpoints of many, many people in the United States, and he said, this is a new religion. People who may claim to follow the one true God, but it's not the one true God. It's a God that is being created kind of in our image so that we can meet our own needs. So the, the main tenets of moralistic, therapeutic deism is that there is a God, um, but God has two main aims for my life. One is for me to be happy and to feel good about myself. That's what life is about, being happy, feeling good about myself. And a way to feel good about myself is being moralistic, being a pretty good person. So that's my aim. I want to feel good about myself, and I want to be a pretty good person and as long as I believe in God, I can do all that, and that's my faith. Now, how do you think that religious viewpoint developed? Well, developed by people wanting to feel good about themselves. <laughs> and so they created this concept of God to, to kind of scratch that itch, to, to meet their desires. So I want to ask, are the Ten Commandments, are they for us today? And the answer is yes. And one of the reasons the answer is yes is because they keep us from coming up with this new religion, moralistic therapeutic deism. They keep us from putting God inside of a little box and saying, oh, I really think that God is fine with this or that, or God just wants to make me happy. Jesus said, uh, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Do not think that I have come to abolish the Ten Commandments, even though they were given to the Israelites in, in the Old Testament. Um, because Jesus finished, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have come, Jesus is saying, to show how to live out these commands in God's truest intent for these laws. And let me suggest something, that the Ten Commandments express the nature of God. That by, by reading through the Ten Commandments, uh, we, see a, we see some very important truths about God expressed in these commandments. In other words, the commandments are not arbitrary rules that God came up with just to keep us in line or to give us something to do with our spare time. Um, God gave the Ten Commandments not because God is some egomaniacal dictator. Just serve me. And here's, here's what I want you to do. But rather, God gave us these commandments because he is a covenantal God. 
that, uh, that God wants to establish a relationship with us in a way that, that um, is informed and influenced by his inner being and who he is. So when God gives these commandments about stealing, thou shalt not steal, lying, not committing false testimony, coveting, us not wanting, just wanting what other people have. It's because God really cares deeply for people. He created each person in his image, and so he treats each person accordingly, like he made them in his image, and so should we. So by carrying out these commands, by living out these commands, we're able to to relate to God in a way that is true to who God is himself. So let's talk about, third point, the result of putting God first. When we put God first, when when we really live into these first two commandments, worshiping the one true God and worshiping the one true God correctly, what are some of the results? Um... One thing is this. We find out that when we, when we are putting God first, the rest of the commandments seem to fall into place. So there's a, just a little statement for you. The first four commandments help us live out the last six. If we take God for who he re- reveals himself to be as the God who does not bend his life around ours, but asks us to adjust our life around his. Um, Then these last, and I'm going to go through the last, yeah, the last six commandments, and they, they, they flow somewhat. So let's look at a few. The fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. If you are really putting God first, that means you are submitting to God's authority and you are um, able to live under the authority structures that God has created for human beings. And at some point in your own growth, you live less and less under the authority of your parents, right? I mean, sooner or later, you're not asking your mother or father, hey, should I buy this house or buy this car or take this job? You might ask for their advice, but you're not living under their authority. But while you are a child, God says live under the authority of your parents because God has set up authority structures for our protection. That's why this commandment has a continued statement, doesn't it? Honor your father and mother so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So another way we can think about this statement, this verse, uh, this, this commandment, is do not rebel against your parents. Honor the authority of your parents. That is, it comes, uh, I'm certainly more open to that if I've first submitted to God's authority and the understanding that God gives us authority structures for us to, to live under. Next commandment. You shall not murder. Anyone struggling with that commandment lately? Hopefully not so, right? Uh, But then Jesus said, okay, this verse goes beyond that. 
He said, I tell you, anyone who is angry with another person, Jesus says, is in danger of judgment. Anyone who has contempt for someone else, not just taking their physical life, but has contempt for someone else, thinks poorly of someone else, or says, you fool, Jesus says, they are, they're a troubled soul that is in danger of hell. You know, when you have contempt for someone, when you, when you, that, that's that hatred, oh, I just wish that person would go away. And that person that you, would, that you wish would just go away is that same person that is made in God's image. And you're saying, oh, I just hate this. I just hate this person. So another, another way to think of this command is do not hate others wishing they would just go away. Because I may not identify with that first statement too much in my life. You shall not commit murder. But that second statement for me, boy, that, that sentiment comes a lot more easily to me. Just wishing, ah, oh, I don't want to hear you on TV anymore. I don't want to read about you, what you have to say anymore. Just go away. You know, at the end of the book of Jonah, uh, think, of, think of the book of Jonah. Jonah is this prophet that God sends to um, give this message of repentance, of judgment and repentance to the Assyrian nation. And, and the capital of the Assyrian nation is Nineveh. And Jonah doesn't want to go prophecy against Nineveh because he really fears that God, that they might turn of their ways and God would be merciful to the Ninevites. And Jonah doesn't want to have anything to do with God being merciful to the Assyrians, as the Assyrian nation was, I mean, they were ruthless um, in them conquering other nations. They were, they were, they were worth, ruthless torturing people. And he winds up going in prophecies to them, they do turn away from their wickedness. God does have mercy on the Ninevites. And the very end of the book describes this relationship, this, this dialogue that Jonah has with God, Jonah expressing his, his anger with this whole scenario in the Ninevites receiving God's mercy. And here's what God tells Jonah. I mean, Jonah's just saying, I have contempt for these people. I just want them to go away. I want you to destroy them. And here's what God said. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And that's what I like to think of that person. Just go away. You can't tell your right hand from your left. Ah. And God is saying, yeah, that same person, shouldn't I have great concern for that individual? See, the Ten Commandments express the nature of God. God is loving. He cares about people who are doing dumb things, thinking dumb things. He loves them very much, and so should we. And quite honestly, and often, we are those people doing dumb things, <laughs> thinking dumb things. 
Next thing, next command, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 18. And now most people think of this verse. I think most people would say, okay, okay, okay. You know, if, if you can avoid that one, that's a good one. I mean, that's a good one just to avoid if you can. Probably a good idea to stay away from that. But then they, a lot of people could think, but, but what, about, what about two individuals outside of marriage having consensual, consensual sex? I mean, that's a lot more acceptable in our culture, right? Our culture says, you know, if, if no one's getting hurt, if it's not harming anyone, what's wrong God? And many people, back to kind of forming their image of God, would say God surely is okay with, with two people loving each other, even enjoying human sexuality with one another outside of the confines of marriage as long as no one's getting hurt. It's just a natural expression of love. It's that kind of idolatry against God that violates the second commandment. That's a false image of God thinking that, oh, God, you would be okay with that, right? God gets to determine the purpose of and the acceptable boundaries of human sexuality. And God has said that sex is to be shared only within the the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife, man and a woman. Our Heidelberg Catechism um, takes this commandment the Heidelberg Catechism is one of those, one of those um, historic documents that we believe helps us to best understand the Scriptures. And it says, it explains the extent of this seventh commandment by saying this, do not be unchaste in sexual relationships. Chastity, that's kind of that, almost seems like an old-fashioned word today. It means faithful sexual relationships as God has defined And God has defined sexual relationships to be enjoyed only between the marriage of a man and a woman, or within the marriage between a man and a woman. Now let's look at the last three commands. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony about anyone. You shall not covet anything of your neighbor. Let's look at a common element of these three. Do not steal. Do not think I can deprive someone else of something that is rightfully theirs because I think it would benefit my life if I were to just have it. Um, Do not commit uh, false testimony. Do not lie about someone else either to uh, damage their reputation, their life, or for me to benefit my own situation at the expense of theirs. And uh, do not covet. Do not desire what someone else has, so much so, to the extent that you become resentful of that person having that and not you. There's a common element that these three verses have at their heart, and it has to do with how we see someone else. The Apostle Paul, I think, gives a good summary statement of these three commands in the New Testament. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul writes, Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. 
those last three commandments. Don't violate them because you're putting your interest above others. Instead, Paul writes, and of course, who is Paul? Who does Paul have in mind as he writes this in Philippians chapter 2? He has in mind someone who lived that out as high as anyone could live out that principle of putting the interest of others before putting himself. And that's Jesus, of course. So the Ten Commandments describe how our faith is supposed to work. They're Our faith is supposed to work not being this constant inner turmoil battle within us where we say, ah, boy, I really would like to steal this, but uh, I know I better not. I really want to just hate this person, but uh, I better not. That's not how the Ten Commandments are supposed to work. And they're certainly not supposed to be things that we take superficially, like, okay, I haven't murdered anyone today. I've done well in that command. No, as we get our hearts right with God, then the rest of the commandments should rather flow. Another way to think about this is a faith in God directing your, is having this, a faith in God that is directing your life instead of your life directing your faith in God. What God reveals about himself should direct my life instead of my life directing how I wish God would reveal himself to be. And I think there's really only one way for this to happen in your life, for the last six commands to flow from the first four. And it happens when Jesus Christ is real to you, when you receive him as the one who who died to connect you to God, saving you from your sins. And when you receive Jesus as your Lord and your leader. And when we do that, Jesus takes God's word and moves it from this place that is printed on a page or in ancient times inscribed on a stone tablet, and Jesus puts it on our heart. Look at Jeremiah 31, verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. It's a new, it's a new covenant, new new way for us to relate to God. But the Ten Commandments are still for us. That doesn't change. But, but they are for us in a different way. Now they're, look, look at what the Lord says. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So God's law gets, gets written on my heart. Jesus will come and make his home inside you so that more and more he is changing your heart. And then the Lord finishes, and I will be their God and they will be my people. This new covenant that God is making. In other words, it's not just a covenant between you and him, but us as a people and God. God will use us as a church to lead others to God as we live out the Ten Commandments as we commit ourselves to loving and worshiping the true God, living out these commandments, we will help lead others to this one true God. So will you commit? Will you commit to knowing and worshiping the true God who has revealed himself through Christ 
and through his word. And will you commit to living how he has told us to live? Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you you speak clearly to us of who you are. We often muddle things up when we read your word, when what your word says comes in conflict with how we wish sometimes you might be. Forgive us when we construct some false image of you and worship that image, thinking that we're honoring you, but we're not. We're just honoring ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would help us to look to Jesus as well and to worship you as we worship our risen Savior Christ. Help us to take your words and cherish them and live by them. We pray all this, Lord, in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.